This is a Triple J podcast. It's National Science Week. Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl, which sees us going from climate change solutions to the cosmos with two very special guests who have not been on a Science with Dr. Carl episode before. First timers. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's jump in. You're on Science with Dr. Carl. It is National Science Week. So a big, happy National Science Week to you, Dr. Carl. And to our special guests. So we have uh, Tiani Adamson. Tell us about your speciality, Dr. Tiani. No worries. So I'm a wildlife conservation biologist and a Kaurig woman descended from the Torres Strait Islands. I didn't grow up on that country, though. I work with climate change solutions and methane mitigation. So we're in a really interesting time at the moment where climate change is the biggest threat to humanity, plants and animals and the survivability of everything that exists. So I work with solutions to mitigate these risks. I also want to say as well, Tiani, you are a superstar of STEM. So you are one of about 60 different uh, scientists, mathematicians, engineers, who is basically at the forefront of communicating science. What, what does that mean to you? And what kind of is being a superstar of STEM? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So being a superstar of STEM, we know that previously science communication has been something that has been really hard for the general public to access. And it's really important that when we have these high level conversations about science and things that are generally quite difficult to understand that we need to be able to communicate and include the Australian people or the global world in understanding these concepts and being able to be involved and sort of have some sort of input into science communication and the way that we develop data and develop concepts together. So the importance of having a network of people who can help communicate science and make it accessible for people Mm. is actually broadly inclusive for everyone to be able to sort of bring up equitable solutions into the science space and also ensure that marginalised voices are heard. So the Superstars of STEM program focuses a lot on obviously women and non-binary and gender diverse people in these spaces, ensuring that our voices are heard. We know that women traditionally haven't been in science, uh, kind of excluded out of science. And furthermore, that First Nations people have always been prevented from being able to access Western science solutions. So we're bridging that gap now. Mm. And if you were to, what what are some of the questions that you kind of want to answer this morning on Science with Dr. Carl? What are some avenues that people can ask you about? Yeah, for sure. So I guess my areas are in First Nations land management, in climate change solutions, in methane mitigation. My major project at the moment is with this incredible seaweed called asparagopsis that reduces methane in cattle. So basically... A lot of the methane that we have in the world, about a third of methane is from the livestock industry and that's through cow burps and farts. Mm. So I deal with this really cool seaweed that deals with this kind of gross problem of, of methane being expelled really quickly from cattle. I have so many questions, but I'm not going to cut the audience's grass. I reckon you're going to get a feel about that. 0439 And we're heading into the stars with Dr. Peter Tatil, who's with you here on Triple J. Now, Dr. Peter, tell us about some of the work that you do, because I feel like this is just kind of mind-blowing in a way. I feel like there's a few different realms that you're in. Tell us about your work in astrophysical imaging. Well, yeah, I mean... Astronomy is often uh, thought of as this, you know, profession where you stay up late and, you know, the, the lone scientist looking through the telescope. In actual fact, we do a lot of what other people do, which is, you know, I, I work with hardware, I work with optics and, you know, I work with computers a lot. So the actual practice of the science is is it's just like a normal science. We, you know, we do lots and lots of mathematics and lots of uh, computer processing. 
Um, I also fly equipment on different satellites and build equipment to deliver to different ground-based observatories. So I build my own experiments, which is wow. kind of a really fun thing. Um, but a lot of the work I do is to do with with understanding light better than than you can just do with a simple optical setup. And if you can pull off these cool tricks with the light, then you can actually go make measurements that couldn't have been made before. Mm. So that, that's kind of my secret source. Okay. But Peter's very humble. He's, you're the only Australian to have something on the Just Wonderful Space Telescope. Yeah, I have, a, I have an experiment flying aboard the James Webb uh, and I've got, I, I got my own little satellite that I'm building right now. It's called Ptolemy, in fact. So. He's got his own satellite as well. Oh I don't have a satellite. Gosh. you got your own satellite? Not in orbit just yet, but Carl, sir, so it will be. Yeah. And, and you're going to launch something towards the nearest star at 1% of the speed of light as well, aren't you? Well, what you're talking on the money about coming is, through? is an audacious futuristic uh, program. And I, I'm sort of in the early teaser stages of that, but there's a, a program called Starshot which has the ambition to try to break out of the solar system, try to get humanity's first leap into the interstellar voids. And I would say, it, uh, you know, as we're doing this, po- this, this broadcast now, this is a pretty futuristic idea, but you have to dream sometime. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, yeah. I, I, it's nice that we're even at the point where we're starting to have those dreams. And, and, and tiny spacecraft, like 10, 20 grams, blasted by the world's most powerful laser, which hasn't been built yet. That's the sort of stuff you're into, man. It's it's almost a cliche to say space is big, but I mean the the distances to the nearest stars are, are kind of absurd. When you, it's just mind-bogglingly big. It's it's light years rather than the nearest planets, which are light seconds or minutes away. So it's it's really that's the scale we have to leap. It's it's not a small uh, step. It's not even a middle step. It's a it's a it's a big jump to the nearest stars. Well, if you have a question about the experiment, the James Webb Telescope, about what Peter is doing in the world of astrophysics, uh, astrophysics, yeah, yeah, astronomy, everything. Oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. We got a question here from Brett in Newcastle. Doctor Brett, you are kicking us off. What do you want to know? So, Doctor Carl, um, my question is about climate change and with all the talk about it. I'm just wondering if what we're experiencing is a part of a natural cycle that the Earth goes through thousands of years apart, for example. Okay, so I'll start off and throw on to Peter because, believe it or not, part of his work is realising that we learn about the weather on our planet by looking at other planets. So I'll just talk about the natural cycle thing. There's a thing called the Milankovitch cycle. Look it up on Wikipedia, M-I-L-A-N-K-O-V-I-T-C-H. And due to three variations in the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, we have ice ages come and go on cycles of either 100,000 years on and about 20,000 years off, or 41,000 years on and about 10,000 years off. And the things that vary in the Earth's orbit are that firstly, the orbit goes from circular to elliptical on a 100,000-year cycle. Secondly, the tilt of the Earth varies from about 21.5 to 24.5 over a 41,000-year cycle and then over a 25,000 or 24,000-year cycle, the Earth slowly sweeps out a circle like a spinning top. So these are natural cycles, but what we're seeing now is totally due to humans and um, we, the, the rate at which it's been happening is astronomically fast. The insurance companies saw it in 1973. Fossil fuel companies agreed in 1982. And all the climate scientists agreed in 1990. And the fossil fuel companies have denied it from 1990 to now. Professor Peter. Right. Yeah. Wow. 
the, the, the key point that Carl just made there is, is the rate of change. The, the ice ages and, and almost all natural changes in the world are incredibly slow. You know, you, you have degrees uh, changing over several centuries, but we are now talking degrees in decades. And in fact, it's, it's sort of a natural consequence of what we're doing. We, um, you know, the, all, that fo- all that carbon has been sequestered there by, not deliberately by, but by the organic systems on the earth, just by the earth's biosphere. And when that carbon was here in the atmosphere, so I guess there's a, there's a perception that people think that just because something might be natural, like a natural change, that it's still fine or it's still good or that that's not somehow a problem. But we, you know, our civilization is here on Earth with the understanding that we have certain condition, conditions that are universally pertaining. You know, we, have, we, have, we rely on our crops to grow. We rely on sea levels to be maintained at the levels they are. So the changes that even if you look back a little way in history to the ice ages, you know, there would have been a, you know, a horrendous problem for society if we had to cope with an ice age. So that's a natural change. But a natural change isn't always something that society can cope with the way it stands. And when all of the fossil, the carbon that is sequestered in the fossils, the the fossil fuels, so coal, oil, um, when all that carbon was in the atmosphere, and that's where it used to live, it used to be up in the atmosphere. We had a much more carbon-rich atmosphere in the past, but millions of years in the past. Um, We had a pretty hellish earth. We had a a completely uh, sterile ocean there's a thing called ocean anoxia. We had a, a sterile ocean, no fish, um, and you really wouldn't have wanted to try and build a human civilization in those eras. Yeah. Also, when we look at the data, when we look at the data of the way that and the rate that our climate is warming and that our Earth is warming, it's with a direct correlation to the industrial revolution and we call these anthropogenic changes so human caused changes to our environment and that's from things that we do as human beings such as burning fossil fuels through coal and gas through deforestation through industrial processes that we have and the way that we live as human beings we don't live in harmony with the earth anymore like first nations people do and we also have things like agricultural practices which release significant amounts of greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and methane these gases then trap heat and really exacerbate the effects of greenhouse gases in our environment. Whew. All right. Brett, how does that sound? Yeah, that sounds um, logical and yeah. um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brett. We've got Nathan here in St Mary's. Now, Nathan, you got a question about something that happened recently as well, but it's been happening for a while. What's going on? Yeah, so there was a couple of stories about whales beaching themselves recently, and while listening to one, I got to thinking, is the beaching part of an evolutionary step? Given enough time, a few million years, would whales start to walk on the land like um, our ancient ancient ancestors did millions of years ago? Ah, there's a lovely science or nature podcast about the evolution of whales. I can't remember whether it was nature or science, but it was in the last few weeks, and how they left the oceans like the rest of us around 400 million years ago and then went back about 40 million years ago in various stages. And this is, in on a time scale... Um, after the dinosaurs uh, that are not birds died out 65 million years ago. With regard to the whales beaching, there's a whole bunch of things going on. Firstly, 
often it happens near magnetic anomalies on the Earth's surface. And there's one place where the Earth's magnetic field goes weird off the west coast of Tasmania. And when the sun has a hissy fit, the magnetic fields go a bit wobbly and they get lost. A second factor is that many whales use sound echolocation. And suppose that underwater you've got a vertical cliff. That's easy. The sound hits the cliff, comes straight back to them. But if you've got a very gently sloping sandy area... They don't get no echoes coming back and so they can beach themselves there. Following on from the sound theme, if you have military exercises with lots of sonar, that upsets the whales and they do bad things as well. Then they have social cohesion. So if one of them is sick and happens to be the leader, it'll go in a bad way and the other ones will will, will firstly follow it. But secondly, if you've got a junior one, in, in, in the, is it a pod of whales mm. that has beached itself accidentally, the others will try to help it and end up there as well. So there's a whole bunch of different... Oh, and then, of course, there's infection. In some cases, we've found massive degrees of infectious disease that has swept through the whole pod. So there's a whole bunch of factors. But is it part of leading them to going back onto land? Almost certainly not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just honing in on the, those navig- the navigational errors that are a part of whales relying on echolocation and those natural navigation cues. And when we're disturbing the environment with things like shipping or naval exercises, that that really leads the whales off course. And that's something that we're looking at with, you know, deep sea mining and those types of exercises and the way that us as human beings influencing whales now. As for much further down the track, talking about evolution and these animals potentially coming on land, evolution is hundreds to thousands of years of processing and of environmental changes and disturbances. So it would be a really long time before whales are growing legs and walking on on the earth for now. Can you imagine? (laughs) Thanks, Nathan. I'm glad we're not preventing them from evolving then by by saving them. (laughs) Cam from Victoria. Cam, you've kind of got a question about the solar system. What's up? G'day everyone. I saw a show about on the universe about a recently discovered new planet called Planet Nine in our solar system. I was wondering if you knew more about it. Peter, what's up? Yeah, well, um, of course, Planet Nine, when we all grew up, used to be Pluto, right? So uh, this actually caused a lot of consternation in the US and, and, and around the world about why and, and how Pluto got demoted from the club. Um, and... Uh, so this was this was actually a vote about what what it means to be a planet, uh, and this was held uh, a decade or so ago. And uh, yeah, I suppose maybe I'm, I'm on the spot here because I first of all, before answering this question about the new one, the new Planet Nine, the old why didn't why, what happened to the old Planet Nine, which was Pluto? Um, Pluto was actually a mistake in the first place. In some ways, it was just this kind of icy hunk of rock that was. Um, it was actually discovered by accident. They were looking for a disturbance in the gravitational orbits uh, of the outer planets. And they expected uh, something in, in order to shove things around, you've, you've got to have a, a bit of mass yourself. So uh, they've narrowed down the coordinates for where the search could go because they, they found these errors in the orbits of the outer planets and they thought, ah, there's got to be something, um, you know, shoving its weight around out there. And then, lo and behold, Pluto popped up. So in the very beginning, Pluto was expected to be this quite massive object, but it turned out that the errors that led us to the discovery of Pluto were actually just errors. They, were, they weren't perturbations in the orbits at all. They, they were just, they, they had, didn't have good enough measurements. So Pluto was, in fact, a lot less massive and a lot more insignificant in a, in a sort of a solar system context than uh, the expectation was when it was discovered. So... For, for that and several other reasons, it didn't quite qualify for the club. Um, but there's always these new ideas that 
and to get closer to your question, um, could there be a, a real heavyweight out there lurking in the dark? And it, it's a very, very large universe. And, uh, you know, something out in the outer solar system is very dim and far and cold. So it could well be that there are massive objects uh, out in the Oort cloud that we don't know about. And the research I think you're talking about is basically a pretty remote glove on that. Uh, you know, we're trying to land a glove on this very difficult opponent, you know, trying to find this extremely distant cold thing. Um, and it's hard to kind of see them because they're very faint. So what we do instead, and I think this is the research, is that we we witness the coming of comets because something out there is like there's a big heavy railroad track um, freight train rolling around in the outer solar system and it's pushing its weight around. It might be disturbing the orbits of comets. So we, we see comets coming in in some kind of pattern that is provoked by this outer solar system object. So I think that's where that's coming from. And Peter, did you vote for Pluto being excluded or not? Were you there? I wasn't actually at that IAU meeting. But in our School of Physics, there is a certain professor at the University of Sydney who did vote Pluto out. And I proudly wear a T-shirt that says, when I was your age, Pluto was a planet. And whenever I do the skills, which I do every Wednesday afternoon, and Pluto comes up, I said, who wants Pluto to be a planet? And everybody says yes. So you managed to escape voting against Pluto. Yeah, that was a, an IAU symposium, uh, which which remains quite one of the more controversial ones because people remember it for this this vote. Yeah. Um, but but Pluto got promoted to be the prototype of a new class. It's now its own thing. It's now a minor planet. So anything that's sort of big enough to drag itself into a roughly a ball, a sphere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other condition, so that's oh. one of the conditions it needs to meet to be a planet. So Pluto ticks that box. But the box it doesn't tick is it's got to dominate its orbit. So ah. in its own orbit, it's got to be the big gorilla. There can't be another one. So the Earth dominates its orbit because we're heavier than the moon. Okay, that's okay. interesting. So we did get a question from someone saying, why did Pluto get kicked off the planet list? And it sounds like that's why. Well, yeah, they saw Pluto and they thought, oh, okay, that's a planet. And then the Hubble found something else. They thought that was bigger than Pluto. Okay, we got a second one. And then they found a third one and a fourth one. And they said, okay, we'll vote them out. We, we can't have 50 planets. We'll vote Pluto out. And then they discovered that the other findings, that there were planets bigger than Pluto, were wrong. It was a mistake. It shouldn't have even been brought up as a question. And we're living with that horror now. <laughs> We've got Emma from a Wobbicle country. Emma, you got a question about breastfeeding. Yeah, so um, my question is about um, breastfeeding and the impacts that it can have on infants who are obviously um, drinking that breast milk. Um, I know that if I take certain medications, there are risks and dangers um, that that medication get, can be passed on to my baby um, and can be harmful. But I'm wondering if the opposite could be true, if I could be taking something that perhaps um, might help with reflux or when she has a cold or something like that, that could be passed through my breast milk to try and help her um, and whether there's been any research into perhaps um, developing such medication for that use. Yeah, people have been looking at that in a big way. Medications that are safe to be passed on through the breast milk to the baby are called 
compatible medications and we've found them. There's a whole bunch of research on what we could do to improve it, but at the moment it seems like there's nothing better than breast milk. But if you can't breastfeed, which does happen, there's no big deal because really the only thing you're missing out are on some of the immunochemicals that come through. But the breast milk composition, or sorry, the uh, artificial milk composition is really good from a nutritional point of view. And we do have vaccines. So the answer is breast milk is the best, but don't worry too much if you can't do it. And we are looking at chemicals that we can specifically add. But then there's always a worry going back to 500 years ago, all drugs are poisons. What matters is the dose. So mm. suppose you're thinking, oh, this is going to be really good. We're adding, say, say a bit of zinc. Okay, we'll add a bit of zinc. And then we might find that it makes your fingernails turn green or something. So we're less likely to add something that might be good as opposed to stop something that might be bad. Definitely. And just to add on to that in terms of epigenetics, so epigenetic changes and modifications to DNA or the associated proteins that can influence gene expression uh, without un- without altering the underlying DNA within us. And it's possible that breast milk could contain molecules that have an effect on this and uh, in, in the infant's body as well as your own, but the extent of these effects is still being highly researched. And I know a bunch of amazing women in science who have been doing research on breast milk and epigenetics, and um, maybe we can pass on some more information about that later, but the role in transmitting specific traits is still a subject of research that's being looked into today. Mm. Emma, great question. Thank you so much. We've got Frankie in Avalon here. Now, Frankie, you've got a question for Tiani. What, what do you want to know? Um, I'm just curious about the sort of plateau of atmospheric methane around the early 2000s and how it's shot up again. And I'm just curious about what the sources could be, like there's some suggestion it's microbial and things, and if there's like specific mitigation research going on in that area of of what's causing it? Yeah, absolutely. So we saw some really interesting things over that time period with COVID and the way that human beings very quickly changed their lives and the way that we operate as a system. And in that, we saw that we had massively decreased uh, CO2 emissions because of the change of lifestyle that we had and an increase in methane. Some of these, you're right, is related to the way that uh, we think that microbes exist. We're actually having warmer swamps and a warmer climate and swamps expel a lot of methane. But we also have massive influences of different parts of our society in ways that we mine gas and we're looking at ways of mitigating that in in terms of gas leaks and those types of things. There's a focus to some extent of uh, natural gas and the way that we're going to transition with renewables and gas, which is a really interesting uh, part of climate science to definitely look into, but also the way that we extensively farm and are increasing the amount of cattle on earth. The cattle and ruminants in our systems contribute to a third of methane emissions worldwide. It's actually more than fossil fuels. So it's a really intensive process or part of our system that contributes really heavily to, to methane there. In terms of solutions, there's a lot of different ways that we're looking at that. As I said, lots of people are talking about renewable energy transitions, gas leaks from those. There is some thought into the way that natural systems contribute to methane, but my research and science looks into reducing methane in agriculture by using this amazing seaweed called asparagopsis that reduces methane in rumen, so in ruminants, so anything with four stomachs, by up to 90%. So it's an amazing climate wow. solution. 
Uh, how, how much do you have to add to their diet, like half their diet? Uh, is, is this seaweed stuff or Yeah, 10%? so thanks, Dr. Carl. So an, an average cow eats about 14 kilograms of dry feed per day and we only add in 50 grams of seaweed into their diet to have this 90% methane reduction rate. S- sorry, one cow, 14 kilograms of dry feed. Yeah, oh per day. Oh, my God, get yeah. in there. So we've got this little 50-gram supplement of seaweed, super great, uh, reducing that methane output. And instead of losing this energy as a gas, so 95% through burps, 5% uh, on the back end there, we're retaining that energy and making the cow be able to grow faster. Those little microbes that expel all of that gas in the rumen are now retaining that energy. So much less than a percent. Mm. Wow. Amazing. Peter, I reckon you can get into this one. Phil in Nooseville, what is your question? Uh, morning, doctors. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my quick question is, I was picturing the space junk that recently entered the atmosphere over Victoria last week or the week before, I think. Uh, I imagine it burning up on re-entry. And it got me thinking what it takes to burn up. Like, for example, why aren't supersonic jets burning up? Is it a specific speed they have to reach or is it a surface friction ratio that needs to be had? Yeah, I, I think you've got the elements of your own answer right there. Um, okay. Uh, something, an object in low Earth orbit, and I'm, I'm meant to be launching a satellite next year, um, it'll go around the Earth in about 90 minutes. So when that thing drops down into the atmosphere, it's got a lot of energy to lose. Um, and if you think about, the, in fact, you'll, you'll find this in, in your basic physics textbook, energy goes as the square of the speed. So this is this is why... You know, road safety campaigns worrying about that extra 10 kilometres you might be driving because it doesn't just go as the speed you're going, it goes as the square. So the energy that a spacecraft's got to dump is, um, you know, from that speed and, you know, we could we could put it in thousands of kilometres an hour, but it's actually around the world. The thing to think keep in your head is around the world in 90 minutes. Now, even the Concorde, and I want to say I've never flown the Concorde, but across from London, that's a supersonic airliner, um, from London to New York, I think it was still a few hours, wasn't it? Two, or two three hours, hours, something. Yeah. Yeah. So around the whole world, you're talking, you know, eight hours or something. So basically your own answer is that jets just aren't going nearly fast enough. But I don't know if you remember... So is there the... a magic speed that you have to reach to ignite, basically? Is there a certain... Yeah. Well, short answer is yes. You, you, they do get very hot. If you remember the, the spy plane, the... SR-21 Blackbird. SR-71. 71 Blackbird. That I've been sorry. in the front seat of twice. Oh, wow, Carl. The, you, you, I like I'll, to make you jealous. I'll, just, I'll touch your shirt later and I'll never wash the hand. But the, um, <laughs> the, the SR-71, when it was on the uh, runway, it used to leak fuel because it got so hot when it was flying that the fuel tanks were designed to be sealed when it was at temperature, which is very, very hot. But... When it was still cold, it used to leak fuel on the runway like, like the clappers. And when it was at 70,000 feet where the sky is black and the earth is curved and you're wearing a spacesuit, and if you get a hole in it, you die, the nose was at 400 degrees C, which is why they had to make it entirely out of titanium. And the major supply of titanium back then was the Soviet Union, so they had to keep it secret so they wouldn't have the Soviet Union cutting back on their supplies of titanium. And then they found they could get the titanium from Australian beaches, which have been mined. So it can get very, very hot. Thanks, Phil. We've got Mark in Bathurst. Dr. Mark, what's your question? I just had a question about plants. I, I know my mytho sings to her plants. I just want to know if singing to your plants makes them grow. 
Yeah, we, we finally got some data on that. So when I was a hippie, I believed everything. And I read <laughs> The Secret Life of Plants and all that sort of stuff. And they said that plants would make noises. But I was unable to find that until, wait for it, the last two weeks. And we've actually found that plants make noise. If you get a plant and then cut it or deprive it of water, the plants will make different amounts of noise. The volume is roughly quiet human speech, but the frequency is up in 40 to 80 kilohertz, and you can't hear it. However, mice, bats, and um, some other moss can hear the noise. But hang on, Mark. So you were saying that your miso sings to plants, sings to her plants? Yeah, no, I'm on Triple J. It's Dr. Carl. Um, She's always singing to plants, and I'm just like, what are you doing? But ah, apparently she's seen on TikTok and on all the socials that, you know, it's helping them make them grow. So I just want to okay. call in and ask. Look, we have, no, we have zero proof that singing to plants makes them grow. However, we do know that when bees are hanging around and they're trying to get some nectar, which they need as a fuel supply, they will emit ultrasonic sounds. And the plants that happen to be near where they are We don't know where the ears are on the plants, but within three minutes of the ultrasound of the bees being blasted upon the plants, within three minutes, the plants will start making a nectar that is sweeter than normal. How do they do this? We do not know. Does singing to your plants hurt? No, it probably makes you feel good. And if you're there, you're chucking some extra water, sing to your plants all day. I'm trying to make my plants grow better. Tiani? (laughs) So plants also release volatile organic compounds and they release these into the air as a response to stress, damage or environmental conditions. So maybe your miso singing is making these plants release some volatile organic compounds in that sense. They also have amazing ways of doing root communication and mycorrhizal associations with things like fungi. There's actually studies that's been when... uh, plants are predated on so there's a giraffe that's say eating a tree that the plants can communicate with each other down a line to tell the trees at the other end of the line to start wilting to prevent predation of these herbivores on the plant very very cool stuff wow. as a side it's note. called the wood wide web and, and the roots growing into your drains is also maybe not an accident that the plant can actually hear the water in the drain according to some studies. Well, Mark in Bathurst, I hope that answered your question. We've got Luke in Shepparton right there on the line. Uh, Luke, what's your question? you got a question about deep heat. Yeah, I was just wondering, like when you use deep heat, the muscles that you apply it on heat up, but it doesn't heat up your hands. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, what's, what's the deal with that? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So skin sensitivity is a part of it. So the thickness and sensitivity of your hands is very different to the skin that's on other parts of your body. And it's also a little bit about cognitive factors and what you're focusing on when you're having this technique. It's actually a lot about human psychology and where your attention is on. So you're focusing on heating up your muscles and, and sort of applying the deep heat to that area and not on the sensation in your hands. So perhaps next time that you put it on, if you really focus about the sensation that's going on your hands, you might notice something different. However, like I said, the sensitivity is very different. Our hands are a lot more hardy than other parts of our body. We can grow calluses on them and things like that. Whereas say, you're applying the deep heat to something somewhere like your the inside of your leg it's a lot softer skin that's not so vulnerable to other sort of stimulus all the time unless maybe the pants or maybe your partner or something like that however uh, I would say to make sure that you do wash your hands after you use deep Mm. heat because if you've ever used deep heat and gone to the bathroom and say wiped yourself you might notice something different and I'm thinking of a very impractical experiment which is to get a baby (laughs) 
Oh, no. Right, a baby which has never got the calluses on its hands and doesn't work, somehow convince your six-month-old baby to rub deep heat with its hands onto its leg and see what it complains about most of the hands. Yeah, they sounds have the, like very ethical experiments. Very ethical problems. We might avoid that <laughs> yeah. one. We've got Graham here from Laylord. Graham, what's your question? G'day, doctors. Um, I reckon you two have uh, earned uh, Professor Emeritus status by now. But anyway, um, the, the Blue Giant star Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse, however you pronounce it, uh, there's a lot of talk about it. Uh, it's, it's due to go supernova sometime between now and the end of the universe. Uh, is it speeding up? Peter, What's take it away. Speed? And how big is it anyway? Oh, Betelgeuse is a is is a red giant. Um, it's it's actually, in fact, uh, you should go out and look at it tonight. I, I love Betelgeuse because it's one of the experiments you can do in astronomy just with your naked eye, and you can see some physics. Because if you look at Orion, um, and of course we're in the southern hemisphere here, so it's it's an upside down swordsman. But I think it really just looks kind of like a box. It's like a sort of a wonky box with with Orion's belt in the middle. It's quite a. It's one of the most visible things in the sky, in fact. But if you look at the bright stars, the big four bright stars around the box of Betelgeuse, um, one of them is noticeably red. It's it's it, maybe orange if you if you don't have the very best kids eyesight like my kids. But um, you can see it's orange, and you just made a measurement there with your naked eye that tells you something about the universe. It's it's red because it's red hot, and most of the other stars are blue or white because they're blue or white hot. So you just made a temperature measurement, which I think is a cool thing to do because writ large and with more equipment, you just did something that more or less professional astronomers are doing all the time. So the question about whether it's about to blow, well, the answer is yes, um, it's about to blow. Um, but of course, we're, we're astronomers and about to something that's about to happen might be a million years away or, or several tens of millions of years away. Um, it's imminent. And what that means is that as far as we know, it's in its last stable phase before it runs out of fuel and collapses. But the problem with stars is that all of the real machinery, the engine room of the star, is buried right down in the core. And in fact, even light, the energy that our sun produces takes thousands of years to get from the core of our sun all the way out to the surface of the sun. It takes thousands of years? Yeah, it's it, it, only a, a couple of light seconds. That's right, but the, the, it's so thick and heavy, it's trying to make its way through molasses. So the, the, the very density of the solar material down at the deeper layers causes the light to always be absorbed and re-emitted, absorbed and re-emitted, so it's sort of trapped there and it moves very slowly. Um, the light, once it gets to the surface of the sun, of course, takes only eight minutes to fly all the way from the sun to the earth. So the problem for Betelgeuse is that, yes, as far as we know, it's in its last stable phase. The next stop is probably a, a supernova and oblivion. But the measurements we'd need to make to tell us just how close it is to blowing up would need to be made on the engine room of the star, which is right down deep in the core. And it's it's very hard to know what's going on just by looking at the surface. How big is it? Like our sun is one and a half million kilometres across. Is it like two times bigger than that or five times bigger? Um, oh, it's vastly bigger than our sun. If if you put Betelgeuse in our solar system, replaced the sun for Betelgeuse, it would gobble up the Earth and, what? and, and Mars. Yeah, it's, 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 its surface would occupy most of the inner solar system. So instead of being one and a half million kilometres across, it's 280 million kilometres plus. Yeah, it's... it's a. It would swallow up Mercury, Venus and Earth. 
Yes. Wow. Wow. We got James from Stanmore. Dr. James, you've got a question particularly about Tiani Adamson's research. What do you want to know? Yeah, so you mentioned that if you feed cattle um, with that are fed dry feed to seaweed seaweed product, it'll reduce their methane output quite significantly. I wanted to know if the methane output from cattle is the same whether it's on dry feed or pasture fed. And if so, is that seaweed product still viable for pasture fed cattle? Yeah, thanks so much for your question. So basically the methane that's being produced is because the microbes inside the rumen are creating methanogenesis. So they're creating methane as a product. It's about 12% of feed is going towards creating methane and it's expelled as this gas. So it doesn't really matter what sort of feed it is, whether it's pasture fed um, or whether it's intensively fed. But when we add these feed additives such as asparagopsis seaweed, we see the same results of being able to reduce that methane by up to 90%. So whether they're uh, grain fed or whether they're pasture fed, it's still the same amount of seaweed that we're adding in. And we've got a massive team of researchers at CH4 Global who work on these solutions to be able to make sure that we've got the exact right amount of seaweed because we want the product to be safe and affecting the rumen um, effectively. So I hope that helps. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks, James. We've got Ricky in Brisbane. Dr Ricky, what do you want to know? Hi. I'd, my question is about um, space and stuff. Is about the Van Allen belt. And, um, like, basically... <coughs> If, you know, we're doing the SpaceX thing to Mars and we're going to the moon, well, like, you know, I've heard a little bit of going back to the moon. Um, how do we get across that? Because the Van Allen belt is a, you know, highly radioactive field that we can't really get through. Ah, look, let me give you some numbers. You got a pen and paper there? Uh, or memory? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, so 3,000. 3,000 millisieverts is the dose of radiation... And if you give that over an hour, that will kill, uh, you know, half the people who get it. It's a fatal dose, 3,000 millisieverts. But when they're travelling through the Van Allen belt and they do it in maybe 10, 20 minutes, they're not getting 3,000 millisieverts. The outside of the spaceship's getting 130, but the spaceship's made of metal. So on the inside, they're getting 20. Nevertheless... The we-never-went-to-the-moon denialists wrongly claim that the moon astronauts would have died from radiation poisoning as they crossed the Van Allen belts. They're wrong. Yeah, so the Van Allen belts are actually uh, just a a belt, the name implies, just not very far from the Earth. But I think your question was really more about interplanetary flight and going to Mars. And that's not so much about dodging the bullet from Van Allen belts itself, but just the radiant environment out in outer space. And, and, And you're quite right, it is nasty. You don't want to be having all of your DNA exposed to all that radiation for, for long lengths of like months or, or years at a time it would take to get to Mars. So in fact, and, and I hope the listeners are you know, going to be okay with this explanation, but you, you need to actually take a lot of shielding if you're going to go a long way in outer space. And that shielding, because you've got heavy mass restrictions, uh, has to be your food as well. But of, of course, people probably have connected the dots by now. When you've eaten the food, you still need the shielding, so you've, you've got to put it all back out there. So um, this probably tells you a little bit about the architecture of a, of a moon flight. You know, it, it's one of the things that you've got to do when you fly these great distances. You've got to be very careful with uh, your use of mass. Does that help, Ricky? Yes, it does. That helps a lot. Thank you very much. And you were thank just you very the, much, doctors. Yeah, thank you. You were just the last question on what has been a massive 
Science Hour for National Science Week. A big thank you to Dr. Peter Tatil, who, where can we see more of your work? Where can we go and check out what you've been doing? Well, I've got an article in Scientific American just out for Science Week. In fact, well, it, it, it was years in the making, but happened to drop this week. So that's very lucky. So just go to scientificamerican.com and you'll see an article from me there on, on my stellar research. Oh. But uh, if you just look for me at Sydney University, you'll find I've got web pages there. Oh, congratulations. And Tiani Adamson, who is a superstar of STEM, where can we follow what you're up to? Yeah, so ch4global.com is our organisation's website. Lots of cool stuff on methane mitigation and climate solutions that we do there. And then I chuck a bunch of stuff up on the public speaking First Nations Justice Climate Advocacy on Instagram, which is Tiani Jade. Thanks for listening to this Science Week episode of Dr. Carl. If you want to keep up to date with Tiani Adamson or read that piece from Dr. Peter Tuttle, we're going to have links for you in the show notes below. And any National Science Week content you can check out via ABC Science and also by taking a scroll through the Science with Dr. Carl podcast feed. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill and we'll catch you next week. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast, it's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.